Hello and welcome in to the Floor Slap Podcast, everyone. As always, I'm your host, Sean. And as we return the page on week eight of college football and look towards another fantastic slate of Big Ten football in week nine, kind of means that we're finally entering this final stretch of the college football season, which is just absolutely bananas to think about. Still feels like the college football season just started a few weeks ago. Uh, but we have another loaded episode today. Um, as always, going to recap a couple huge games from the past weekend in the Big Ten. Um, and then we're going to get into a pulse check on the Big Ten West because it is a muddied mess right now. Virtually everyone is still in the race, so we're going to break down who the true contenders are, go through a few scenarios, and kind of give you my prediction of how that division will end up shaking out. Then I'm going to have to touch on the Michigan cheating scandal, you know, everything going on with that sign-stealing operation. Going to give you the facts and kind of what, I guess, in particular Michigan fans should be really looking for as more and more information starts to come out. And that will take us into previewing week nine um, and my five Big Ten betting locks, which works perfectly this week with five Big Ten matchups. So loaded episode this week, a lot of information to get through. Uh, So let's not waste any more time and jump right into it. This is the Floor Slap Podcast. So first things first in this episode, going to have to start off the episode uh, with recapping the matchup of the entire college football weekend. Number seven, Penn State traveling to Columbus to take on the number three ranked Ohio State Buckeyes. And, you know, definitely saw some some mistakes, a little bit of ugly offenses from both sides, but I don't think you could walk away from that game not thinking that it's definitely two top 10 teams and two top five defenses in the entire country. I mean, it wasn't necessarily a case of bad offense throughout the game. Drew Aller certainly missed some throws in that second half that you know you would expect you know, a Division One quarterback to complete, but he was rattled all day, and it was just so evident from the get-go that these two defenses are legit and are good enough to carry both of these teams to um, at least stay close with any team in the country. Um, but you're going to have to break down this game and what it means for both sides. I'm going to start on the Penn State side of things. Uh, and first and foremost, as I mentioned to start, their, their defense is not a concern. I'm still 100% confident this is one of the five best defenses nationally, and I was lucky enough to be at that game in person. Fantastic environment. Can't say enough about the Scarlet out at a noon game. I know it's tough for fans to get up for a noon game, but Ohio State fans brought it on Saturday. Um, and what was I, I was really wowed about um, looking at that game in person were the Penn State linebackers. I mean, you knew, based off of last year, coming into the season, guys like Abdul Carter and Curtis Jacobs were great. But seeing them in person, you could really sense their speed and their strength and just their their knowledge of the game. I mean, they... I mean, they were incredible, really, all game. And they made it incredibly hard for Ohio State to get the edge on any runs outside the tackles. Really, Ohio State's only success they had running the ball were between those tackles. Um, and those are two NFL linebackers. I mean, that much I'm positive about. And I think their cornerback, Kalen King, he's still a slam dunk first round draft pick. Um, and he wasn't matched up against Marvin Harrison Jr. on every play in that game, but the the plays he was matched up on Marvin Harrison, Marvin won those matchups. I mean, just thinking back to that game, there was only one rep that I can really think about where um, Kalen King got the best of Marvin Harrison, um, but I think that mainly speaks more so to the talent of Marvin Harrison Jr. than anything that Kalen King is lacking. I mean, those are, I think, going to be five years from now, we're going to be looking at that as as, two, as an all-pro matchup that we got to see in college, so uh, definitely not concerned about Penn State's defense at all. They are good enough to keep them in any game this season, but Offensively, obviously, there is a lot to fix before they host Michigan in a couple weeks. 
I think their biggest concern probably starts up front because, um, you know, their offensive line made major strides last season. I think that was one of the biggest surprises as far as a position group in the Big Ten goes. I mean, they came into the season last year as perhaps one of the worst offensive lines in the Big Ten as far as what people are expecting them to perform, and they outperformed that by a mile, ended up being one of the five best offensive lines in the Big Ten. And with, you know, a guy like Olu Fashanu, slam dunk first round pick and really the majority of that offensive line and their depth pieces coming back I think a lot of people including myself expected them to take another step forward maybe not um, as drastic of a step but I expected Penn State to have a really solid offensive line one of the better lines in the entire country and they haven't played up to even last year's standard at all this season and that was just highlighted against Ohio State um, they were dominated from the get-go in run and pass blocking. And of course, credit to Ohio State. I mean, I think coming out of that game, I'm confident that they are the best defense in the country. Um, and they made Drew Aller very uncomfortable from the very first snap. It was He rarely had any time and room to really step up into his throws. Um, receivers were blanketed. He really did not have any, many open receivers to hit. Um, and he was so rattled, you know, he couldn't even hit those receivers uh, the few times they did get open in that second half, like I mentioned before, a lot of miscues, uh, misthrows by him as the game went on. But honestly, I put a lot of the blame on the coaching more so than Drew Aller because, you know, I'll start off with the wide receivers because that's a different conversation. I think that the, the talent disparity that Penn State has at wide receiver right now is apparent because they have not recruited that position at a very high level in the past few years. Um, you know, if you think back to the earlier days of James Franklin, guys like um, Allen Robinson, but, you know, that was with... Um, that was before James Franklin, but you know guys like Allen Robinson and Chris Godwin coming out of Penn State. I feel like there is they've kind of cemented a solid history of producing NFL caliber receivers at that school. And the past three to five years, it really just has not been uh, that case at all, um, as far as recruiting that wide receiver position. And I think coming into this season. They still had the return of someone like Keandre Lambert-Smith, who could you thought could take the top off of any defense, and then the addition of some high-profile transfers, specifically Dante Cephas, who I was really excited about coming into this season. Um, I think there was promise coming into this this year that this wide receiver group could be special and could give a lot of options for Drew Aller. Um, but these guys, it was evident on Saturday, they cannot get open. They can't go win one-on-one -on -one jump balls. They can't really stretch the field. They're not helping Drew Aller at all. He doesn't have a security blanket where, you know, he's under duress, everyone's covered, you can at least find this one-on-one -on -one matchup and go give him a chance to make a play. They don't have any of those receivers, and I think it's really hard for Drew Aller to find any rhythm in the passing game when he's throwing to guys that, you know, wouldn't even make Ohio State's too deep at the position. And second of all, I mean, that's more so on a recruiting and personnel standpoint. Obviously, going into this game, they couldn't magically create better receivers. Um, the, where, the, the point I kind of blame the coaching staff comes down to how they abandoned the run way too early. I mean, they seemed scared to run the ball on a third short. Um, they kept relying on Drew Aller to make a play with his arm when it was clear in the first quarter he wasn't going to be able to win that game with his arm. I mean, after that first drive, you could kind of feel that, you know, this Ohio State defense has a swagger. They are powerful. And, you know, maybe I was alone in this, but after that first quarter, I, w I knew that Drew Aller wasn't going to be able to piece together, you know, 60, 70, 80 yard touchdown drives with his arm alone. Um, and I didn't really see anything so far this season that made me think Drew Aller could come in and be the reason Penn State pulls off this upset. But it seems like fans and even the coaching staff had had been drinking, drinking the Kool-Aid to some extent and thought that he was something he isn't, at least not yet. Because 
his arm talent is real. Is real. He just isn't a polished quarterback, which again falls on the coaching staff. Why isn't one of the highest rated prospects in the history of Penn State, you know, a blue blood program, why isn't someone like Drew Aller, five-star quarterback, um, why isn't he developing? Why does he still look like a true freshman in his second year at the program and his seventh uh, start? I get it. He was going up a great defense. I get this is his first time in a hostile environment, but you'd expect him to be a little above where he is right now. And so I think Mike Yurkic, Yerk- um, sorry, their offensive coordinator needs to shoulder a lot of the blame here for how bad this offense looked. He hasn't helped Drew Aller develop evidently because he's also their quarterback coach you know the the Drew Aller I saw in in snippets last season is still the same Drew Aller I'm seeing this year and he called a game that allowed Ohio State to just pin their ears back and get after the quarterback without worrying about the running backs um, or someone taking off the top of their defense Um, so where does Penn State go from here because um, you know, luckily for them, they do have a perfect opportunity to to work on the things that they struggled against um, this weekend against Indiana. And then they travel to Maryland before hosting Michigan. Um, so I think the schedule works out for them to kind of progress over the next two weeks. Obviously, Maryland, I've talked them up a lot this season. That is definitely no easy win for them. But I think you know, starting off with an easy win to get like Indiana kind of step up a little bit against Maryland before they go take on Michigan. I like how that schedule works out for them to, you know, fix some of the issues they've had in the next two weeks. So in these next two games, I want to see Drew Aller push the ball downfield more because I know he has the arm to do it. Um, And if there's a team that you can stretch the field against and just, you know, start to pick apart one-on-one matchups, even with maybe your undermatched receivers, it's against Indiana. This is the week to do it. I don't care if you're scared about putting too much on film for Michigan. Uh, you got to go out and just let Drew Aller know that he is capable of throwing some deep balls and really operating this offense. You got to find some way to give him confidence. Um, I also want to see more creative ways of getting Nick Singleton and Catron Allen the ball because the only big offensive plays Penn State had in that game were Catron Allen runs. And it just can't be that obvious when Penn State is go- wants to run the ball or is going to run the ball, because um, it, it kind of seems like you know when it, it kind of se- seems like when Penn State wanted to run the ball, they showed their hand and they brought in that jumbo set. So I want to see some draws. I want to see some swing passes. I want to see some screens, other ways to get Nick Singleton and Catron Allen the ball because they are still by far their best skill position players and they each need to be getting double digit touches every single game at the minimum, more like 15 to 20 each. Um, so I think if they can mix in those types of plays while taking more shots down the field, it'll, it'll keep the defenses off the line of scrimmage and it'll keep them off balance. The only problem is that it's a lot to do in two weeks. I mean, they have a long way to go in the next two weeks when, if they want to hang in there with Michigan. Uh, but the good news is their defense is as good as advertised. They should keep them in the game against Michigan. But at some point in that game, you know, whether this is a low scoring 13, 10 ish type game, like it was against, um, Ohio State, or if there are some more points, if they're able to rip off some big runs against Michigan and this game ends up going in the 20s, um, at some point in that game, Drew Aller is going to have to lead a touchdown drive in order to win. And, you know, when I say lead it, I mean make throw after throw after throw. That's what big time quarterbacks does, and he is supposed to be a big time quarterback. That is why Penn State fans had college football playoff aspirations this season. So at some point in that game, he's going to have to step up and do something that he hasn't really done yet this year. Um, so he has to mature a lot over the next two weeks if they want a chance of pulling that up, pulling off that upset and getting back into the college football playoff race. Now, pivoting to the other end with Ohio State, um, I, I, I mentioned when I first kicked off this segment, but first of all, 
what a game defensively. I mean, the pass rushers are finally coming alive. That was one of my biggest concerns about this entire Ohio State defense um, a couple weeks ago, and they just wreaked havoc and beat Olu Fashanu, a future first-round pick, in a lot of instances. Um, but yeah, those pass rushers came alive. The defensive line really harassed the offensive line and Drew Aller all day long, and their secondary looked immaculate. I mean, they were without Denzel Burke, their best cornerback and one of the best corners in the country, but Jermaine Matthews, a true freshman, he stepped up and had a couple pass breakups, absolutely blanketing receivers. Um, so it, it really looks like this defense does not have a weakness. And even a couple weeks ago, you were still a little a little nervous about, you know, will they get, will they give up big plays? Can they get after the quarterback? And, I mean, they've answered all those questions. And I have no problem saying that this Ohio State defense is the best in the country. Um, I mean, even like safeties like Josh Proctor and Lathan Ransom, they've made tremendous strides in pass coverage. I mean, they can line up receivers now and play them like a cornerback and they are still two of the best safeties in the country in run support um so yeah i I mean i think this is the best defense in the country um coming into the game the narrative was that drew aller was good enough to get penn state over the hump and put up points on this defense and drew aller was the reason penn state could pull off the upset that was the narrative in the national media whether you agreed with it or not there was a lot of people that was putting a lot of stock into drew aller and this penn state offense but Ohio State beat them so bad, the narrative has now switched. Not that Ohio State's defense is that great, but, oh, Penn State's offense must be horrible. And they forget that this was the number five scoring offense coming into the country, I mean, in the country coming into this game. So um, I think it's ridiculous. This is the best defense in the country, and I think that just goes to show how badly they beat Penn State that now people are pivoting to say that Penn State's offense isn't any good because that's not tr- that's just not true. Um then switching to the offensive side of the ball, because this game was definitely not perfect by any means for the Buckeyes. Offensive line, I mean, I guess to start off on the positive side, the offensive line has played a little bit better. They are starting to get their stride. They didn't rip off really any huge runs, but there was a period there, and kind of later in the second quarter, they started to find their rhythm in the run game. And this was without Travion Henderson as well, remind you. By far their best running back, by really the only guy on this team that can rip off, you know, 40, 50 yard touchdown runs. Um, so offensive line, I think, played pretty well, considering the defense they were going up against, considering they were down their best running back. Um, McCord generally had time to throw. Um, and, you know, like I said, not any massive holes in the run game, but they did run the ball better than I thought they would. Um, but at the end of the day, I think Kyle McCord needs to play better if they want to run the table and win a championship because he did just enough to beat a Penn State team who was, I think, like I said, it was evident early on that this Penn State offense was not going to be able to put up more than like 14 points on the defense. And he did just enough to beat an offense that, you know, was struggling throughout the day. He took care of the ball. He found Marvin Harrison and whenever he could, and he had a few nice throws and he saved his best football for the second half, which is something he's been tending to do the entire season. But the fact of the matter is when Ohio State plays Michigan, JJ McCarthy is not missing those throws that Drew Aller missed in the second half. Um, Ohio State had two second half red zone trips that turned into only three points until they had that final touchdown. Um, so when they play a team like Michigan, those are opportunities you have to convert. Um, it felt like Ohio State could have put this game um, out of reach, you know, around the midway through the third quarter, but they let Penn State hang around. And if they do that same thing to a team like Michigan, um, it's going to come back to bite them. But I think if this offensive line continues to improve like they have been, and if Travion Henderson and Emeka Abuka return to the field, and if Kyle McCord continues to make good decisions, because his problem isn't um, decision-making, it's his inconsistent accuracy. He can, you know, throw 30 yards on a rope um, on a dime to um, a receiver in the very next play, you know, 
miss Marvin Harrison on a screen by five yards. It just doesn't make sense. His accuracy, he's an accurate quarterback, but he's very inconsistent with it. So at the very least, if he can continue to make good decisions, then um, on top of those other things I just mentioned, I'm 100% confident that Ohio State will be playing their best football by the end of the year, and they'll be capable of putting up 30-plus points against a defense like Michigan. And the way that their own defense is playing, I think 30 points is enough to beat anyone in the country, assuming that defense does stay healthy. Because, you know, they haven't, the injury bug hasn't hit them yet. It has hit other the offensive side of the ball to an extent, um, and it hit them last year on defense. So, you know, you have to hold your breath, knock on one if you're in Ohio State. State fan that this defense stays healthy, but if they do, I think 30 points is enough for them to beat anyone in the country. So I know I'm looking ahead a little bit, but it, I'm just so excited for this Ohio State Michigan matchup. I mean, the cheating out, I mean, yeah, the cheating, sign stealing allegations a lot uh, aside, because I know that there's a lot of Ohio State Michigan going back and forth with that. Um, but you just kind of get the sense that um, any punishment that'll come down from Michigan for this won't affect this team, um, at least until after the season. It's going to affect the 20, 2024 Michigan Wolverines and beyond. So, I mean, the Michigan team we're seeing is the Michigan team that is going to be matching up against Ohio State at the end of the season, likely for a Big Ten title in college football playoff berth. Um, and Ohio State, finally, after the past two seasons of getting just punched in the mouth by them, they finally have the defense to hang in there with the Wolverines. Um, they're going to be capable of taking away the run game and forcing J.J. McCarthy to win the game with his arm, and unlike last year, he won't have receivers open by 20 yards. Um, but Michigan actually has the advantage on offense for the first time probably since 2011. Um, so that, that should be a great game, and I think Saturday's result, even though a lot of people are taking it as an opportunity to bash Ohio State, say they're not good offensively, say they're not a legit legitimate national title contender and say that they will get dog walked by Michigan again. I think Saturday's result only made me more confident that Ohio State can and will hang with Michigan and maybe even knock them off. I wouldn't put Ohio State as the favorite by any means, but I am just so excited for that game to get underway. And we know we're still a month out, but Saturday's result just came, made me so excited for the end of season matchup. But, you know, we have plenty of time to dissect the game. So off until uh, other Big Ten things. And because we have such a loaded slate coming up, and because a lot of the other games around the Big Ten were snoozers, only really have time to talk about one other Big Ten game from Week 8, and that's actually going to be the game of the week. I know coming into this weekend, figured Ohio State and Penn State would take that title, but Wisconsin and Illinois played in a really entertaining game, and I'm going to recap for that for you um, in case you got in case you missed it, because it was one of the most competitive and cleanest Big Ten matchups we've seen this season, because I know if you've been watching Big Ten football, you know how sloppy it's been, and you know, a lot of the games have been pretty unwatchable, but this was a great game from beginning to start. Um, I mean, Wisconsin's offense did get off to a slow start. They gained only about 90 total yards on their first five drives, which resulted in zero points, three punts, a fumble, and a turnover on down. So definitely, I guess I spoke a little too soon. It was definitely a sloppy start from Wisconsin's offense, and that slow start resulted in a 14-0 deficit midway through the second quarter, and Illinois was really really riding Luke Altmyer's uh, legs and the legs of true freshman Caden Fee who took the starting role because that running back room is getting really beat up. But they were grinding out tough yardage from the get-go. They were doing a really good job of converting in short yardage situations, which led to that 14-0 lead. Uh, but then Wisconsin's offense finally found its rhythm. Um, and you know, whether it was reluctant for the coaching staff or not, the Badgers finally started to re- lean on Braylon Ad- Allen and fed him like he deserves to be fed to the tune of 29 carries and 145 yards and a touchdown on the ground. Um, they threw the ball less on first down, which I loved, and that allowed Braden Locke to find some open receivers because um, the Illinois defense had no choice but to respect that run game. 
And he came up huge on a lot of third downs. Um, so credit to him because he did deliver in ways that he did not against Iowa. Um, and a lot of that was because he had the, the run game to kind of keep that defense on its heels. And Braylon Locke, though, was, Braden Locke was a big reason why Wisconsin went 10 for 17 on third down, which is just about 60%, which is so much better than the 40% they were averaging coming into that game. So a combination of a dedication to the run game and a much more confident Braden Locke compared to what we saw last week is a big reason why they were able to convert those third downs and get the ball moving. Um, Wisconsin put together a beautiful drive to cut, cut the deficit to seven at halftime, um, but Luke Altmaier scrambling ended up setting another setting up another Illinois touchdown, which made it 21 to seven late in the third quarter. But Wisconsin really put it together offensively when it mattered most. Their last three drives were a 12 play 52 yard drive, a 10 play 82 yard drive, and a 14 play 83 yard drive that totaled in 18 points in the fourth quarter. And to be fair, a lot of that success had to do with the ejection, ejection of Johnny Newton because um, he absolutely lit up <laughs> Braden Locke on a sack that would have made it second and 18 for Wisconsin at their own 20, down 11 with 10 minutes left in the game. You know, if they don't end up somehow finding a way to convert that uh, long second, I mean, that second and 18 into a first down, it's looking, it, it, it looked like it was going to get dark early for Wisconsin. But targeting ended up being called to that tackle. And I know Illinois fans were not happy but it was the right call. You can't blame the refs for that making that call because they followed the rule. I mean, Johnny Newton, he had the crown of his helmet hit him. He led with his head. Um, you can hate the rule as much as you want because that was a great football play, and it's a shame something like that not only re- resulted in a first down for Illinois, I mean Wisconsin, but also the ejection of Illinois' best defensive player. So you can hate the rule all you want. It really sucks when a great football play ends up hurting a team and then you lose your best player because of it. But at the end of the day, you know, the rule is the rule and Newton has to just keep his head up in that situation. But once that happened, Illinois was unable to get any pressure on Braden Locke. And on that game-winning drive that Wisconsin had, they actually ran the ball on a third and 10 from the Illinois 46 and they got it. And that's not a play that they dial up if Newton is in the game. They don't dare try to run the ball on third and long and probably set up a fourth and intermediate at best. But with him with him not in the game, they, you know, surprised them by running the ball on third and long and got it. And that's really I mean, it just outlines the kind of impacts that that loss had on Illinois. Um because they I mean that sack gave Illinois all the momentum they really had momentum for the majority of the game and as soon as that play got got called targeting I mean all the momentum got sucked out of the stadium Wisconsin seized it and never really looked back Wisconsin ended up scoring their game-winning touchdown with 20 seconds left and a two-point conversion they converted earlier in the quarter meant Illinois had to go for the touchdown instead of the field goal, which, uh, you know, ended up with a Hail Mary attempt that did not um, did not convert because Luke Altmaier got sacked. Um, so, you know, for on Illinois' side, with already four conference losses and losing the head-to-head to Wisconsin and Nebraska already, it seems like Illinois likely has to win out to have any chance of winning the West, and even then, the chances are slim. But, you know, with the bye week this week, um, it's not completely out of the question. They can definitely start to get things aligned um, and improve in a lot of facets because yeah, I think their offense has finally found their identity. It took half the season for them to do it, but they are hammering the rock, utilizing Altmaier's legs, who has very underrated speed and quickness. He is not an easy guy to tackle at all. He's a great scrambler too, but you know they are really prioritizing that run game instead of making Luke, Luke Altmaier throw the ball 30, 40 times, which was not working. He's a talented kid, but not that talented, especially behind an offensive line that was mainly struggling. Struggling to to protect him. 
but you know he's utilizing his legs more and he's taking care of the football and he is making two or three big time throws a game um so i think if their backfield can get a little healthier over this week off they do have the tools to pull off an upset against minnesota on the road coming out of their bye week um and they won't face a braylon allen type running back again the rest of their schedule so um you know johnny newton is finally playing like we expected him to coming into this season and guys like uh, dylan rosik and seth coleman are playing well at linebacker and their young secondary starts to make plays um so i think if they can really commit to this offensive or i guess if they committed to this offensive philosophy earlier in the season and i think their defense played like this from week one illinois is in a very very different place so it likely is a little you know just too little too late for illinois and the big 10 west title hopes but at the very least i think illinois has finally get some positive momentum in their direction even with this loss you know the offensive and defensive side sides of the ball are just playing so much better than they were in september um i think that could you know, hopefully springboard them to a bowl uh, a bowl appearance and give them some hope for next season uh, and then on the Wisconsin side, really impressed by Braden Locke. I mean, because he did not look ready for the moment at all when he came in for Tanner Mordecai against Iowa. Granted, it granted it was um, against a great Iowa defense, and that coaching staff did not do him any favors, asking him to consistently drop back against that Iowa front and win the game with his arm. Um, it was clear that he was not capable of doing that. He the moment seemed a little too big for him, which you can't blame him. You know, redshirt freshman quarterback. Um, but he looked much more poised and comfortable this week and made some impressive throws. Like I said before, he came up big on a lot of third downs. Um, so he has to make sure that he's securing that ball when he tucks it because he did have a fumble that was costly in the first half. But otherwise, he took care of the ball. He didn't force it. You know, I don't really remember any throws he had in that game that should have been intercepted and weren't. Um, so really liked what I saw from Braden Locke. I don't think this offense is going to dip too much moving forward with the absence of Tanner Mordecai um, and you know defensively they were really only getting beaten by Altmaier scrambling and they didn't really seem to account for that um, and luckily for them there's really the only other quarterback who can run the ball like that is Heinrich Hardberg from Nebraska but he does not have nearly the arm that Altmaier does like they don't have to respect the pass game when they play Nebraska like they do against Illinois so despite the slow start it was good to see Wisconsin keep fighting despite last week's tough loss um, they're still first in the west and I like their chances to keep it close against Ohio State this weekend. I'll preview that that game later on in the episode. Um, but you know, despite the fact that I like them to keep it close, you can't bake on a win. So that will likely be their second conference loss, which would put them behind Iowa because they lost that head to head. But nonetheless, they're in the thick of the race, and I think that is a perfect transition into the next segment. You know, we're going to close the book on Week Eight. Look forward to Week Nine, and it all starts with a pulse check on the Big Ten West. So I came into this season thinking the Big Ten West was ready to make some strides and not be kind of the laughing stock of the Big Ten and the reason why a lot of people around the country don't respect the Big Ten Conference. And even though I like a lot of the hires they made, I love a lot of the coaches, and I think a lot of these Big Ten West teams um, will be more than just you know easy wins on the schedule uh, when the Big Ten expands next year and eliminates divisions. The division as a whole this season has been uglier than I could have imagined, somehow worse than last season. Um, But uh, the plus side is, is... it's going to make for a really entertaining race down the stretch. Even if the winner of that race is their, their reward is getting their brains beaten in by the big 10 East champion. Um, it's going to be fun to see who wins the West and who ends up getting that birth to a, a pretty good bowl game. So 
at this point in the season, you know, eight weeks in, I think Illinois, Purdue, and Northwestern are the only teams I can say are, are essentially out of the Big Ten West race. Um, like I mentioned before with Illinois, they would have to win out and hope Wisconsin drops all but one of their remaining five games because they don't have that head-to-head. Um, so I think that's really unlikely. Purdue is one in three. They already have losses to Iowa and Wisconsin and a game against Michigan coming up. So you figure that'll already take them to four conference losses soon. Um and I just can't envision Wisconsin collapsing like they um, like they would have to in order to get Purdue and Illinois back in that race. Um, so in Northwestern, you know they still have a chance given their record. You know they have games against Iowa and Wisconsin still to come. So everything's in front of them. Northwestern certainly is not eliminated from the Big Ten West race, but I just don't think they have. Um, the offensive line or skill position players to hang in there. You have to also remember they still have to play Maryland from the East as well. But as much as I love David Braun, as as hard as this defense plays, and as much as I love um, kind of the grit this team has really established, like I said before, they just don't have the offensive line or skill position players to keep up in the West. And that's saying something, given how bad all of these offenses really are. Um, so. Even though on paper they're still alive, I just don't believe they have the talent necessary to stay in this race. So I think they can pull off one more upset and finish with a 4-8 and eight record, which is very respectable given the preseason expectations. A lot of people didn't think they'd even be able to win a single game. Uh, so a 4-8 and eight record I think would be a great, great season for David Braun and something he can build off of when he hopefully gets an interim tag removed. Um, but I think that comeback they had against Minnesota earlier in the year was more of a nice story for them than more so than an indication of how their, their games will go against the rest of these big 10 West teams. But so that leaves Wisconsin, Iowa, Nebraska, and Minnesota, who are all firmly in this Big Ten West race. So let's assume Wisconsin loses to Ohio State this weekend, which, let's be honest, seems like a safe bet. We'll preview that game later to explain why. Um, but that would put Iowa in the driver's seat for the division, because like I said, they would both have uh, two Big Ten losses, and Iowa would have that head-to-head. Um, but Iowa still has to finish the season with Rutgers, Illinois, and Nebraska. All three of those teams have mobile quarterbacks who are capable of ripping off some big plays, and they all have defenses that, at the very least, are playing their best football of the season right now, and all signs indicate that they're only going to get better from here on out. So if I'm being honest, given how just miserable Iowa's offense has looked, I just don't see how they get through that without another loss. You know, as great as their defensive special teams is, I just... It seems hard to be able to win out um, that schedule by only scoring, you know, ten to thirteen points a game offensively. So I think that means Iowa is likely finishing six and three in the Big Ten, and that is the key record to keep in mind: six and three in the Big Ten. That is the record I think most schools should be gunning for if they want to win this division. So bear with me here. Wisconsin will likely be sitting at bit two Big Ten losses after this weekend, like I mentioned before, which means they would have to win out in order to win the West. So they stay below that three loss mark because they do uh, they did lose that head to head to Iowa. But I like how their schedule shakes out after that Ohio State game because then they play Indiana and Northwestern after Ohio State. And they should be able to pick up a couple easy wins there and make sure that they are playing their best football and have some momentum heading into a pivotal two game stretch to end the season versus Nebraska and at Minnesota. Both should be tough games for Wisconsin. But given how that schedule shakes out after the Ohio State game, I like their chances to be able to you know, be playing confident football heading into that two game stretch and win out. So I think, I mean, 
a two-loss Big Ten season for Wisconsin is certainly on the table, and that's really what they're gunning for right now. Um, meanwhile, Minnesota is a very interesting player because they have that head-to-head win versus Iowa. They currently have two Big Ten losses, so they can afford one more conference loss. And they play Ohio State in their second-to-last game of the season, so that's, you know, you got to figure their third loss. So Minnesota plays Michigan State, Illinois, and Purdue before that Ohio State game, and then they finish the season against their rival, uh, Wisconsin. So it certainly won't be easy, but you know if they do win those three games, Michigan State, Illinois, Purdue, and then lose to Ohio State, believe it or not, they'll be playing for the division when they host Wisconsin. Regardless of what's going on with Wisconsin, it, you know whether or not they, they are sitting at that two-conference loss mark or if they dropped a couple games, um, Minnesota will be playing. If they win, they win the Big Ten West, if that's how that shakes out. And if Wisconsin you know loses to Ohio State and wins out, like I think they have a really good chance to, that Minnesota-Wisconsin game will be the decider of the Big Ten West, which could be super exciting and so and again that is assuming Iowa drops that third Big Ten game um, somewhere along the way which I think is pretty likely um, but the team I really want to talk about is Nebraska because they are the wild card in all this um, they did lose that head-to-head matchup with Minnesota to open up the season and that could very well hurt them if Minnesota um, can win those next three games like I mentioned but Nebraska finishes the season against Maryland Wisconsin and Iowa so three really really tough teams for them but everything is in front of them. They control their own destiny, and they have the defense to be at least in every single one of those games um, heading into the fourth quarter. And unlike Iowa, Wisconsin, and Minnesota, Nebraska has a quarterback who can beat you with their legs, which I think is going to be pivotal in November football. Because, you know, teams start to get beaten up, and your defenses really start to rise up in November. So having a quarterback who can, you know, take a lot of hits on the chin and keep out churning yards on the ground is going to be... Um, integral for for their chances of winning the Big Ten West. Um, my problem with Nebraska, though, is that they still haven't really proved that they can play a full game of mistake-free football. And when you still don't really have a talent edge like Nebraska, um, you got to win games by winning that turnover battle. Um, and that's why I have a hard time seeing them finishing 4-1 and one down the stretch, which is likely what they'll have to do in order to win the Big Ten West. Um, but we'll know a lot more after this weekend. I'll preview their uh, game against Purdue, which is a huge matchup for both teams. I think a loss would essentially take them out of the race. Obviously, they wouldn't be formally eliminated, but if they can't pull off this home win against Purdue, um, I just have a hard time seeing them hang in there with Maryland, Wisconsin, and Iowa to finish the season. Um, but I think if they get a decisive win, I think it means that they are really ready for this final stretch and capable of pulling off those upsets. So, how do I think this is all going to shake out? Um, so like I said before, I think Iowa has one more loss in front of them. Um, and I like the fe- the fight I'm seeing out of Minnesota, but I'm, I look at their schedule. I think they lose to either Illinois or Purdue um, before getting that fourth Big Ten loss against Ohio State. I just think the margin between these teams is so small, and I, I have a hard time seeing really any of them string together You know, a lot of consecutive wins. And it's the same thing with Nebraska. Um, these teams that are eliminated, quote-unquote, like I said before, um, Illinois, Purdue, and Northwestern, they're all capable of knocking off any one of these teams. And you kind of get a sense that they will pull off a few upsets. Um, so I ultimately think Wisconsin is going to win their final four games because of how that schedule lines up playing Indiana and Northwestern after Ohio State, get a couple easy wins, get to, you know, put in some new wrinkles on the offense, get Braden Locke to gain some confidence through that final stretch. Um, and I just trust Luke Fickle at this point uh, as a head coach, what he's been through at Cincinnati more so than I trust a lot of these other young big 10 coaches. Um, 
So they win their final four games. That means they would win the division at a nine and three record with a seven and two conference record. Um, you know, I say that now. It's very possible the division winner has a five and four conference record. Um, that is not out of the realm of possibility whatsoever. But um, and you know, I can still see Wisconsin losing to Nebraska and or Minnesota. Maybe you know, maybe even both. Um, and a lot of it will depend on how many times Iowa stumbles because I think. Um, you know, given you know how great their defense and special teams are, and I think that's the team that a lot of a lot of those teams are chasing because a lot of them have already lost to Iowa. Um, so it's so hard to predict, but that's how I th- see things shaking out. I think Wisconsin. Um, I loved what I saw out of them in that second half against Illinois. I think they are still building towards something great, and I think they still. Um, want to get to that Big Ten championship, and I think they're going to treat those last two games of the regular season like their championship. And so I believe in Wisconsin to win out, go 9-3, and and that would likely mean a top 25 finish in the regular season. They get to the Big Ten title game, and you know who knows? They could definitely um, you know play Ohio State, Michigan, or Penn State tight, at least for a few quarters, and that would get them a really good bowl berth. So you know I kind of get the sense at this point in the season, it's almost it's silly to predict how that division will, will shake out because I mean, they're all competitive teams, and none of them are really good good teams. Um, but it'll be fascinating to watch. But that's my prediction. I think Wisconsin does end up coming out of this division. And now into a segment I was reluctant to talk about because it seems like everyone and their mother is talking about it, you know, on Twitter, social media, what have you. But I feel like I have to give my two cents and try to deliver some facts because there is a lot of speculation going on about the Michigan sign stealing operation, their cheating scandal. Um, so I guess the best way to start is from the beginning. In the early 1990s, the NCAA instituted a rule forbidding in-person scouting of college football teams. And this was done because of the revenue disparity between teams. You know, someone like Northwestern or Colorado State, they wouldn't be able to afford to send scouts out to games like in Ohio State or Michigan would. So it was really an attempt by the NCAA to level out the playing field a little bit. And there has been discussions about eliminating this rule throughout the past 30 years. Um... But it's been maintained for a few reasons, and a big one of those reasons is around sign stealing. And yes, at face value, sign stealing is not against the rules. If you're in the middle of a game and you piece together, for example, that you know a quarterback giving a salute means that they're checking into an inside zone run, good for you. You utilize that. That's part of the game. Um, you can utilize that as best as you can. And you can even have a coach staring down the opposing sideline in the middle of the game trying to decipher signals. And if you can figure that out on the spot, good for you. But that's not what Michigan did. Allegedly, at least. Michigan allegedly went to other schools' games and used technology to record the opponent's sideline to decipher their signals. And that is not allowed. Um, and there are a lot of arguments against this, saying that this is a non-issue. Um, you know, everyone steals signs. You, Jeff Saturday on, on Get Up on ESPN, he had a viral clip that went um, that went made its rounds around social media because um, he was defending Michigan, saying everyone steals signs. But the problem is he's coming at this issue with an NFL background, not realizing rules are very, very different between the NFL and the NCAA. He doesn't realize that filming opponent sidelines and having a list of all of their offensive and defensive signals jeopardizes the integrity of the game. Because unlike the NFL, 
the NCAA does not allow headset communication between coaches and players. And this, once again, is a money issue um, because not every school would be able to afford that technology that allows head coaches and offensive coordinators to talk directly to their quarterbacks. And the NCAA, you know, the pen- penny-pinching, you know, bunch of goblins they are, um, they don't want to have to shell out more money than they need to so all the schools can afford this technology. So without that headset communication, signals are all college teams have for play calling, um, especially in the modern game where you know no one is huddling and no one is running back and forth from the sideline to deliver plays because everyone is going up tempo now. So headset communication could be a real fix for this issue and it could be an outcome um, once this whole issue is resolved. But we have to live in reality to assess this and the reality is sign stealing ruins the integrity of college football because of the way they have it set up. So right now we have proof of two things. The first thing we have proof of is that Michigan sent coaches to opponent games. None of them, none of the games uh, Michigan was playing in. So they were doing in-person scouting, which is against the rules um, and is a violation. But that's not something that would involve a hefty punishment. It's in-person scouting would not be a level one violation. And if that's all the NCAA has proof of, Michigan is fine. Um, but we also seem to have proof that Connor Stallions, you know, this this low-level recruiter um, who is apparently at the center of the sign-stealing operation, we do have seemingly proof that he had laminated photos of opposing uh, team signals and would watch the opposing sideline, see their signal on the sheet, and relay that info directly to Harbaugh so Michigan knows what play is coming. Um, you know, there's video of exactly that happening in last year's Ohio State versus Machine game. Um, and even though I think, you know, anyone with common sense can kind of piece two and two together to what that means, um, that at, by itself is not a violation of any rules because you cannot prove how they got that sheet. And stealing signs is legal. Um, so, you know, having that sheet, however they got it, is not at face value a violation of any rules. It's how you steal signs that can be illegal. Um, and that is the piece that, at least right now, there is no proof of. In order for Michigan to get hit with anything severe, there needs to be proof that these Michigan coaches were filming the opponent's sideline. Um, and that would be against the rules. That would be a major violation. But at this point, there is no proof of that happening. Um, but where this could get really ugly for Michigan is if even more things come out. Because if there's proof that Harbaugh knew about this, there's no way he keeps his job. I'm sorry, plain and simple. Because um, he already made his position known with his statement that he came out with last week right when this stuff broke and if i'm being completely honest the statement was probably not his the university probably pressured him into it so they can try to deflect blame as much as they want but he came out in his statement saying that he had no knowledge whatsoever of a sign stealing operation and so coaches have been fired for lying to the ncaa for much less and this would be his if if proof does come out that jim harbaugh knew about it maybe even planned it and was really the catalyst in all this which again if you're using common sense kind of makes sense that, that he would be um but if proof does come out about that this would be now his second instance of lying to the NCAA in about six months like I said people have gotten fired for much less and he just simply would not survive that he kind of he, he put his chips on the table when he said that he did not have any knowledge of this situation whatsoever if proof comes out saying proving the opposite of that he's going to be in some hot water And where this could get really, really ugly for Michigan is if there's proof that Michigan used football or university funds to purchase these tickets. Um, Because after all, like I said, there is proof that um, there were tickets purchased for Michigan coaches on both sidelines facing each other's um, 
you know, facing each other's sidelines so they could see the coaches. Um, and over the past two seasons, it was something like 30 games and the tickets that they bought were worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so Connor Stallions is, you know, claiming that, you know, he purchased them on his own. He slept on couches uh, to make ends meet. But, you know, he works for a public university. So his salary is, is you know, free information. He makes $55,000 a year. I don't care how many couches he slept on. I don't care what his savings were. He is not affording hundreds of thousand dollars worth of tickets over two seasons with a $55,000 a year salary. He's just not affording those tickets. So if it comes out and there's proof that Michigan is the one who paid for those tickets with university funds, that is where things can get really, really sticky because that's not just a football issue anymore. That is a university issue. And that's how something like the FBI can get involved. And that's how Michigan would be hit with something like lack of institutional control, which is the worst thing the NCAA can lay on you. And that's how something like the death penalty would get floated around. I am not saying that Michigan would ever receive that. They were a blue blood. They could, you know, murder children in front of the NCAA for all they want. They would not get the death penalty. But I guarantee you, if this comes out that they were using public university money to purchase these tickets, um, the narrative will be floated around that Michigan deserves the the death penalty. Guarantee it. It won't happen, but there will be talks about that. Um, so, again, it, it just all depends on the information that is to come out because we can only work with what we have right now. Um, but really, what surprises me the most about the situation is how seemingly every single Michigan fan doesn't think that they did anything wrong. Um, it, it seems to me that Michigan fans are saying, oh, we've reached the summit of college football and all these opposing coaches and the NCAA have it out for us. And yes, I mean, to a degree, everyone steals signs. Um, you know, everyone does their best to try to figure out w- what the other team is going to call from an offensive and de- defensive standpoint. But no one has gone to the extent that Michigan appears to have gone to, um, to know everything the opponent is, is calling. And, you know, if there are schools out there that are doing it, props to them because they're doing a much better job of hiding it than Michigan because it really seems like Michigan did the bare minimum of covering this up between, you know, Stallion's job description, which if you read it on LinkedIn, sounds like his sole job was to come in and steal signs. Um, You know, they had public Venmo transactions, transfer of tickets with coaches' names on a public site. And I know it it just kind of seemed like Michigan either thought they weren't doing anything wrong or that they would never get caught. And the fact that Jim Harbaugh is now coming out and say, denying anything ever happening definitely doesn't seem like they thought nothing, they weren't doing anything wrong. So it just kind of seems like Michigan would never get caught. So that is another thing that really surprises me. Um, but, you know, the fact of the matter is that if there is proof of Michigan taping opposing sidelines, proof that Harbaugh knew about this going on, and proof that the university funds were used to purchase these tickets, Michigan is looking at the biggest punishment we've seen for a school in a long time, maybe even since SMU received the death uh, the death penalty. Because we're, I mean, we'd be talking about Harbaugh getting fired, maybe even banned from the NCAA. We're talking a multi-year postseason ban, redu- reduction of scholarships, vacation of wins. Um, it'd be a nightmare for for Michigan. But until proof of those three things come out. Michigan's in the clear. I mean, based off the information we have right now, if this is all that comes out, um, this will end up being kind of a, a funny story a couple a couple months from now. But considering that the leak is an apparent Michigan alum who was close to the university and now works for the NCAA, I have a feeling that we've only reached the tip of the iceberg as far as the evidence that's been released. Um, 
You know, and another interesting facet about this is the NCAA told the Big Ten that they don't have to wait for their investigation to conclude to hand down a punishment of their own. And I think that's a, a pretty damning case that the NCAA came out because I think that, that to me, that means the NCAA is saying, hey, this is going to take a while. We have a lot more information to come out. But yeah, it's as bad as it sounds. So if you want to take action into your own hands, go for it. And so that means the Big Ten could very well ban them from the title game, ban them from any postseason play, even if they go 12-0, they could suspend Harbaugh. Um, and you know, given what's been released to date, released to date, I don't expect that to happen, at least anytime soon. You know, you would think that the Big Ten would be pretty hesitant to paint one of their premier programs in such a light without all the information possible. But this has spiraled so much in just the past week. You know, in two more weeks, who knows where we'll be sitting at. Um, so essentially, to sum up, as of today, Michigan is safe. If this is all the information that comes out, this will be, like I said before, a funny memory in a couple months. And a lot of Michigan fans will be holding receipts, um, you know, telling, having not so nice things to say to other fan bases who are really rooting for their downfall. Um, but if proof of sideline recording, proof of Harbaugh's knowledge, and proof that university funds bought those tickets, um, Harbaugh is going to end up leaving Michigan in worse condition than Rich Rod or Brady Hoke did. And that is saying something because, I mean, especially Rich Rodriguez, he, that was a dumpster fire when he was at Michigan. Um, so I would encourage everyone to just stay tuned, try to be in the know, and try to wait until all the information is out before condemning Michigan. Um, because we only know so much and we just got to be patient and see what else comes out because, you know, this could end up being really, really ugly for Michigan and it, or it could not be. So we really just got to be patient and wait for more information. You know, that all being said, if it does come out that, you know, Michigan was sending coaches to games, they were filming other uh, team sidelines and they were, you know, stealing their signs and putting it together on a sheet so they knew exactly what play on offense and defense Big Ten opponents were calling. If that all does come out and there is hardcore proof of all of it, I still feel like there will be some Michigan fans out there claiming that, you know, the NCAA is just after them, that this isn't cheating and that there's nothing wrong with this and everyone does it to some degree. And I just can't disagree with that more. And I know a lot of people are saying, oh, you can know the play all you want, but you still have to stop it. And that's certainly true to some degree. I mean, but also let's not forget, this isn't like a Northwestern who went around from a, a borderline bowl team to all of a sudden dominating the Big Ten. This was you know, Michigan. This was a team that was recruiting in the top 10 every single year. This was an a perennial nine or 10 win team, perennial top 20 team. So yeah, if you give a team with that type of talent, you tip them off so they know exactly what's coming. Yeah, that's going to make a big difference. And I, I compare it a lot to, um, the Houston Astros, you know, a few years ago when they got busted with the, uh, you know, cheating to communicate what pitches were coming. Like, listen, hitting a major league fastball is the hardest thing you can do in sports, in my opinion. There is nothing more difficult. But, you know, with all the different pitches that they can get, if you know exactly when that fastball is coming, it certainly helps, especially for a major league batter who can consistently hit those bat those 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 pitches. And so I think it's a lot like that. You know, and if that's your best argument against why you know this isn't cheating, um, then you got to find something else. Because if every team in college football knew what the other one was calling, it'd be it'd be it would wreak havoc. Um, 
I don't know. I just have to get that off my chest because I don't want to condemn Michigan when we don't have all the info. But if this does come out, there will be fans out there who are claiming that there's nothing wrong. Everyone does it to some degree. And that could not be further from the truth. I mean, if this does come out and Michigan, um, you know, hurt the integrity of college football, they deserve everything that's coming to them. But like I said, I don't want to jump to any assumptions right now. There's still a lot more information to come out. So um, I'm going to try to keep my lips sealed as best as possible. And I really encourage everyone out there too to not condemn Michigan without all the information and not assume that they are, are getting off scot-free. But, you know, the idea of any program, especially one with the history and pedigree of Michigan, you know, the idea of them really hurting the integrity of college football is definitely a sam- somber thought. So, you know, let's let's move away from that now. As I said, more information will come out and we can get into previewing a fantastic week nine of Big Ten football. Um, you know, football still goes on despite this investigation and I can't wait for another great weekend. Um, so kick things off with my, my five locks and we do have a, a couple snoozers to, to kick things off. So I think I can run through those pretty quickly. Um, the first game on tap is Maryland against Northwestern. The Terps are 13 and a half point favorites and I mentioned this earlier in the episode Northwestern has a horrible offensive line frankly one of the worst offensive lines in the entire country and even though Maryland struggles to some degree to stop the run at times they make a lot of plays behind a lot of scrimmage a lot of TFLs and a lot of sacks so I don't expect Northwestern to really be able to play ahead of the sticks very much I think they're going to find themselves in a lot of third and longs and sure they'll convert a few they might be able to get a few big plays on this Maryland defense but you know barring any great field position thanks to a, a big return or turnover I have a hard time seeing how Northwestern is going to move the ball and put up any points especially if the if they have to trot out Brandon Sullivan again with uh Ben Bryant you know their 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 quarterback uh dealing with an injury but on the the flip side Maryland is coming off of a much needed buy I hope to see them run the ball a lot more with Roman Hemby and not make Talia go out there and play hero ball every snap which is what they seem very content on doing against Illinois Um, and even if they don't they should be able to challenge the Northwestern secondary in a way that really none of their other opponents have been able to this season that's saying something because a lot of teams have put up a lot of yards on Northwestern Um, so I think what makes this line a little bit scary at 13 and a half is that you know this Northwestern team has a lot of fight in them. They are not one to to quit early. They play to the final whistle. And so I could see a backdoor cover here. I could see Maryland going up big early and getting kind of comfortable and kind of like we saw against Minnesota, uh, Northwestern trying to rally back late. Um, but I honestly expect Maryland to come out hot after that disappointing loss to Illinois. I think they're a lot better than what they showed that weekend. And I think they want to come out this weekend and prove it. And, you know, I guess Mike Loxley is good for one letdown game a year and hopefully that's behind them. Um, I think this is a three touchdown game, meaning I'm more than comfortable taking Maryland to cover, even if this line moves, but it hasn't moved yet. So I'd expect it to say pretty stat, I mean, pretty pat it at 13 and a half. Um, and I love Maryland to cover that line. Like I said, I think this will be a three touchdown game. The other snoozer we have this weekend is Penn State hosting Indiana. Penn State is a 31 and a half point favorite. Some books have already gone up to 32. Um, but you know, a letdown is certainly on the table for Penn State um, after their offense got their brains beaten in by Ohio State this past weekend. And but, you know, despite how bad Drew Aller looked to some degree, he still had a handful of throws that reminded me why Penn State fans had such high expectations for him. And, you know, he's not going to be harassed by Indiana's front like he was Ohio State. He will have time to throw and he will have time to step into his throw and he won't be scared if he, you know, on the few throws he does have time, you know, about getting hit. That's not going to be the case. Um, and I think James Franklin is going to want to open this offense a little bit and, 
make it the Drew Aller show. Give him some confidence as they enter a tough two-game stretch of Maryland and Michigan and let him go win the game with his arm. You know, this is a veteran team and I don't expect a letdown from them, um, even though that could be the logical thing to do. Um, I think Penn State puts up a lot of points and, um, you know, probably gets a few defensive, maybe a defensive score, at least a big, some big plays on the defensive side of the ball, getting turnovers and setting up the offense in plus territory. Um, so I think the, the fact that Indiana might get shut out, which is a legitimate possibility, um, you know, they couldn't do much against Rutgers last weekend and Penn State's got a better defense than Rutgers. Um, that makes me a little scared about hitting the over at 45 and a half, you know, I could see this game as like a 41 nothing game. Um, so instead, I'll go with Penn State to cover instead. You know, I think they easily put up 35 points. And again, there's a really good chance that Indiana gets shut out. So I think Penn State's going to come out angry. I think they probably cover more like by 35 or 40 points. And honestly, if this line came out before the Ohio State game, I'd expect the line to be, um, you know, closer to 35 or 38 uh, like it was for Michigan. So uh, I think Penn State wins easily. They cover minus 31 and a half. Whether you get it minus 32, it doesn't really matter. Um, I think I think 35 seems like a pretty good number. I would take this all the way up to, to 34 and a half. Now we can get into some of the more exciting matchups of the weekend. Um, first one, Michigan State uh, traveling to Minnesota. Um, I know I say exciting matchups and I list something like this where both offenses are just simply inept. You know, Minnesota finally has been following the advice that I, I gave to them all the way back at the end of September, just keeping the ball out of Ethan Kalik Manis' hands as much as possible and running the ball every chance they get. And Michigan State, for all their flaws, as horribly as this season has gone for them, they still have a good defensive front. Um, and I think they can make it a little bit more difficult for Minnesota to run the ball. And assuming Michigan State, um, you know, hasn't thrown in the towel on the season yet, you know, that that's what I'm kind of assuming here. But they should make it hard for Minnesota to put up points. And that's a Minnesota offense that doesn't score many points. Um, but for Michigan State, I'm really just looking for some signs of life from their offense, whether it be making some room on the ground for Nate Carter and Jalen Berger, or if it's Katen Hauser carrying the good the good play he had in the first half against Rutgers into this game and playing a complete game. I'm just looking for anything positive from this Spartan offense, some sort of pulse, something that tells me that they just don't want the season to end. Um, you know, I'm not expecting necessarily big plays, but you know, can they grind out some tough yards? Are they okay going on an ugly 13-play drive just to set up a field goal? Um, just looking for some sort of spark, some sort of hope, some sort of pulse from their offense that has been dead for weeks. And for Minnesota, I'm looking for their defense to replicate the game they had against Iowa. Granted, it was the Iowa offense, you know, the worst in, co in college football, um, but I'm looking for them to carry some momentum because this is a defense that has been very inconsistent throughout the entire season. You know, they have t guys like Tyler Newbin who can make a few big plays a game, but as a whole, this defense really has struggled and they put together the best game of the season last week against Iowa. So I'm looking for them to shut down that Spartan run game and force Caden Hauser uh, to beat them with his arm and in the process, get a couple turnovers and win that turnover margin. Um, but ultimately, I hate both of these offenses so much. I have no choice but to go with the under at 40 and a half. You know, I don't see a scenario where both of these teams top 20 points. I think this is more like a 23-13 game for Minnesota. And, you know, you look at Iowa versus Minnesota, that to that total was 22 points. And you sub in Michigan State for Iowa. I don't see how the game plays out much differently than last week. Um, Minnesota is a seven-point favorite. I don't love that. 
um, really by any means. I think because I, I go back to the last game we saw Michigan State play against Rutgers. They came out on all firing on all cylinders in that first half, and um, they very well could have pulled that upset off if it wasn't for a meltdown in the fourth quarter. So, it, would I be shocked if Michigan State comes out and upsets uh, Minnesota? No. I wouldn't be shocked if any of the Big Ten West teams lost to any team in the conference. Um, so I don't love that spread um, because, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Michigan pulled off the upset. I also wouldn't be surprised if Minnesota won by 14 or 17 points. So instead, I'm going with the under at 40 and a half. I love that. Um, hopefully there isn't too much movement. You know, if it goes down even to like 39, 38, I'm not going to feel nearly as confident just because we are dealing with an absurdly no, another absurdly low number in a Big Ten football game. But as long as it stays at 40 or higher, higher i love the under in this game my fourth big 10 betting lock will come out of lincoln nebraska um, where they are hosting the purdue boilermakers nebraska is a two and a half point favorite in this game and it's really a pivotal game for the huskers as i mentioned before because a win would really cement them as a legitimate big 10 west contender but a loss would make it really really hard for them to get back in the race obviously Anything can happen in the Big Ten West race. I don't think um, many teams are going to be officially eliminated until the last two weeks of the season. Um, but Nebraska really needs a win if they have any hope of getting into the Big Ten West. Um, so, I mean, the Huskers are coming off an ugly game against Northwestern where their defense dominated once again, probably maybe their best defensive performance of the season. Um, but their offense really did not have a whole light to a whole lot to write home about. Um, you know, they had a one great drive before halftime, then a big one play drive that resulted in the touchdown in the second half. Other than those two drives, uh, they did not do anything offensively against Northwestern. And Purdue, meanwhile, is uh, coming off their bye. They should definitely have more energy um, coming off that bye after, you know, they had a brutal schedule to start the season, one of the hardest in all of college football that concluded with a, a, a visit from Ohio State where they just got absolutely demolished. So I'm looking for Purdue to come out with a much different energy than we've seen over the past few weeks. Um, so Purdue is a team that virtually everyone has been able to run on. Even Iowa ran up and down the field on them. So I'm looking for Nebraska to dominate the line of scrimmage and potentially get 100 yards from both Heinrich Harburg and Anthony Grant. You know, I know a lot of Husker fans are upset about the quarterback play and their lack of downfield, or not even just the downfield passing attack, their lack of passing attack at all. Um, but I don't think this is the game for, for Huskers to try to push the ball downfield and prove that Heinrich Hardberg can be a pocket quarterback. Because, um, you know, like I said, I know a lot of them are wanting to see more out of the pass game and a lot of them are thinking it's time to, to reassess that quarterback position. But, you know, we've seen what the alternative is. Nebraska's best option is Heinrich Harburg, and I think Nebraska fans just have to suffer through this offensive identity for the rest of the season. They'll take a few shots every game, but this offense is going to be predicated on Harburg's legs with RPOs and option plays. Um, if they are going to win the in the I'm sorry, win the West, um, it'll be on that formula. Plus, taking care of the football, which you know I touched on before, is has been a challenge for them this season. So I'm simultaneously looking for Nebraska to run the ball well. Um, definitely better than they did last week against Northwestern. Um, and also, I'm also looking for Purdue to show some fight in the trenches and in that run game, which we haven't really seen much of this season. Um, so despite some great improvement on defense for Nebraska, they are 104th nationally in turnovers with only seven forced, and they're 125th with a minus eight turnover margin. So I'm looking for them to win that turnover battle against a team that's had similar struggles with turnovers. Um, 
And they should be able to get after Hudson Card. You know, this has also been a Purdue offensive line that has been really inconsistent for the majority of the season. So I'm looking for this Nebraska defense to make uh, Hudson Card uncomfortable and force some mistakes and win that turnover margin. Um, meanwhile, I'm looking directly at Hudson Card for Purdue. I mean, he's had his moments this year. He's He showed reasons, um, you know, why... Purdue fans were so excited about him coming into this season, but for the most part, he really has not lived up to the hype as one of the transfer portal's best quarterbacks. So I'm looking for him to have his best game of the season um, because if there is a weakness on this Nebraska defense, it's their secondary. Um, and I think coming off the bye, I think Purdue can have their cleanest offensive game of the season, take care of the football, and generate some big plays in that pass game because I don't expect you know all of a sudden them to d- develop a game-changing run run attack, especially against this Nebraska front. Um, so I think it's going to come down to Hudson Card and can he make plays in the pass game while simultaneously taking care of the football? So, um, I think for both teams, it's going to come down to, I mean, for Nebraska offensively, can they run the ball? Purdue defensively, can they stop the run? And then, um, going to come down to the turnover battle when Purdue has the ball. Um, so like I said, with Purdue's weakness in the run defense and Nebraska's susceptibility against the pass, I think both teams are going to be able to put up some points this game and it's not likely to be pretty, but you know, neither of these offenses are incompetent enough and neither of these defenses are dominant enough to really warrant an over under or under 40 points. Um, so I like the over in this game. I think the final score could be in like the 27, 23 range. Um, so exactly. I feel like the over under is kind of trending downward too, as well. I think a lot of people saw that Minnesota Iowa game last week and are kind of assuming that same performance from every big 10 team. But, um, I think both these teams can, can put up points on each other. So, uh, with the over under at 39 and a half right now, I love the over. And my fifth and final big 10 betting lock of week nine will come in the Big Ten's primetime game on NBC when Ohio State travels to Madison to take on Wisconsin. And this was a game that I circled in the preseason for Ohio State because I thought coming out of that emotional win against Penn State, traveling to Madison where Ohio State really has not walked in and just handled Wisconsin in recent history, um, I thought this would be a really str- a big struggle for them and a game that they potentially lose. That was also at a time when I held ex- my expectations much higher for Wisconsin. Um, but heading into this game this weekend, I still think there's a really good chance Wisconsin can keep it close. So I think the key for the Badgers in this game um, is to bring in some offensive wrinkles. You know, jet sweeps, quarterback runs, creative ways to get Braylon Allen the ball in space. Um, and they also have to you know find ways to get the ball out of Braylon Locke's hands quickly and get him in some sort of rhythm early on in that game because this Ohio State defensive line and those edge rushers, they are finding their rhythm. And you know if Braylon, Braylon Locke holds on to the ball too long, they're going to get after him. Like they're going to make his life miserable. Um, and you know, Wisconsin isn't going to be able to grind out long drives on the ground against his team. Um, you know, Penn State tried to do that last weekend and you saw how that went. Um, so I think they're also going to have to try to find some big plays, which is something that Ohio State has not given up this season. Um, That's exactly why they need to throw in some offensive wrinkles and show Ohio State some stuff that they have not seen on tape from Wisconsin all season long. And I think um, coming out, coming off of that, you know, beat down at Penn State, this Ohio State defense is their confidence is going to be at an all time high. So I think there is a really good chance that, you know, they aren't taking Wisconsin super seriously and they think that maybe they can sleepwalk through this game. So I think taking shots, especially early, is a good way to keep this defense off balance um, and take advantage of what could be a slow start from Ohio State. Because if Wisconsin does connect on a couple big plays early in the game, they could throw Ohio State off scripts entirely, offensively and defensively. Because again, this is not a defense that has given up a single play of uh, 40 or more yards. 
And defensively for Wisconsin, I think they have to blitz a lot and they have to keep two guys on Marvin Harrison at all times. And I'm just not meaning some safety help. I mean, put two guys on the line of scrimmage facing him. Uh, I think you got to make Kyle McCord make a quick decision and don't let that decision be Marvin Harrison. Because, you know, if Cade Stover goes off for 150 yards, you live with that. If the backfield ends up catching 12 passes, you live with that. You know, if Chip Trainum goes off and runs for 150 yards, you live with that. Um, I don't think you can live it live with you know Kyle McCord having time and letting him find Marvin Harrison whenever he wants um so that's what they have to do and you know if if they get burned by it they get burned by it um but they just they gotta let Ohio they gotta make Ohio State move away from what has been their MO this entire season and for Ohio State like I mentioned before they need a quick start um because this is going to be a tough environment for them Playing in Madison at night is never easily is never easy, and you also have to remember after that Notre Dame game, that really emotional win, um, they had a bye week, and even with that, they came out really slow and really dead against Maryland. Um, and so, you know, this is a quick turnaround this week, and uh, they need they just need to get off to a quick start. And I don't think, especially in a road environment, they can afford to get down ten nothing early like they did against Minnesota, um, Maryland. And defensively, honestly, I don't think there's really anything specific that they need to do differently um, to prepare for this Wisconsin team. Like I said, if Wisconsin's going to move the ball at all, it's going to be because of stuff that we have not seen on tape yet this season. Um, So I think they just have to, you know, show up ready to play from the first snap. And offensively, I think it's integral for... uh, Ohio State to win first down, run the ball well, or find a one-on-one matchup for Kyle McCord to pick apart because, you know, getting into third and long situations is how games can spiral in tough road environments. Um, so I, th- I think they have to, you know, not be too aggressive and, you know, set themselves up to, you know, face a lot of second and tens or get sacked on first and 10. They have to run the ball well on first down and just win that down as much as possible because I think if they can consistently get themselves in, you know, second and shorts or, you know, second and intermediate, um, the offense will be able to grind out some long drives against this defense um but as soon as you know kyle mccord takes the sack on first down it's going to be really tough against this defense to to regain that yardage and get that first down so definitely need a quick start from ohio state um but as far as where i'm going with this game ohio state's at a 14 and a half point favorite and you know just on paper it makes sense to take ohio state to cover you know they are just playing so much better than wisconsin has the past few weeks um, but I am really scared of this slow start, and I'm really scared of Ohio State playing in Madison. I mean, the last few times they have gone there, it has been a a tight game down to the wire. Ohio State has to come back from early deficits in a lot of those situations. So I just don't love Ohio State to to beat Wisconsin by by more than 14. I will say, if Wisconsin, I mean, if Ohio State does cover, I feel like the overhits and if they're if Wisconsin covers, I feel like it's going to be the under that hits. It is at forty three and a half. It has not changed much uh, since it opened. Or it hasn't changed at all. It's been it's been staying pat at forty three and a half. So this is probably the game that I'm most uncertain about heading into the weekend. Uh, my pick is going to be with the over. Um, you know, mainly because I do think it's a chance that Wisconsin gets some get some early points against this Ohio State defense that might be snoozing a little bit. And also this, I mean, Ohio State offense, I just think it is getting better and better. And Wisconsin defense, you know, they've had their bright bright moments this season, but they don't hold the candle to to Penn State. And I also think, um, you know, this is just kind of a gut feeling that Travion Henderson and Emeka Abuka are finally going to come back. So I think Ohio State's going to be a little bit more loaded on the offensive side of the ball. And I like them to hit 30 in this game offensively. Um, that means Wisconsin would only have to put up 14 points if that's if Ohio State only even hits 30. So um, again, this is definitely the game out of the five 
five that I'm least confident about, but I'm going to roll with the over because I think Ohio State's offense is going to is going to find some rhythm. They'll be healthier. They'll put up points, and I'm expecting a little bit of a letdown performance for this Ohio State defense. So um, I like the over at 43 and a half, but not so much that I'm going to going to hit the over with a lot of movement like if this goes above 45 i might switch it to the under because i think it's going to be it is going to be really close either way where this over under goes and where the spread goes um you know i could see ohio state pulling out a tight one possession game but i could also see them you know winning by by 24 so this is a tough game to predict because a lot of it is going to come down to the emotional aspect of it you know wisconsin playing at home under the lights versus ohio state coming off an emotional win so if there's one game you want to fade me on it might be this one but my official pick is going to be over at 43 and a half and that'll do it for this episode of the Floor Slaps College Football Podcast. I've been your host, Sean, and as always, really appreciate anyone and everyone that's out there listening. Please follow us on Twitter at The Floor Slap. Check out our website, thefloorslap.com. Jordan released his college basketball preview which kicks off next week believe it or not so make sure you get all of that content while you still can um and make sure you keep an eye out for our articles that we post every week um i'll catch you back here next week for another edition of the floor slap podcast hope you enjoy a great weekend of college football and stay safe.